Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats as Peter came by. At least his shadow might fall upon some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter the apostle answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But the Pharisee, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And when he had said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, is a, a, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Christ. Let's pray. That Christ is Jesus. Father, like always, we ask you to breathe upon your word. Enlighten our minds to understand just how incredible our Savior is. 
just how powerful the Word of God is, just how liberating it is, Father God. Liberate all of us, Father God, from the hostilities that are around us. Everywhere we turn, we see hostility towards Christ. We see unbelief all around us. We see compromise and indifference everywhere, Father God. The world being turned upside down. And yes, we have the words of this life. The world doesn't. You've entrusted the words of this life to earthen vessels, Father God. And we thank you, Lord God. Breathe upon this text and illuminate our minds, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Excuse me. As we said, Acts is an historical account of the spread of the gospel message around the known world. And we never want to lose that thought as we're going through the book of Acts. It's there for a purpose. It's an historical account of how the gospel went from Jerusalem through the throughout the Mediterranean world and all the way made its way into Rome. It started in a little room up in Jerusalem and we find out about 25 years later the gospel came face to face with Caesar's courtroom and that's where the apostle Paul was able to open up before all the intelligent, all the senators and Caesar himself just how awesome Jesus Christ is. This text is the beginning if you go home and read your, your Bibles of hostilities. Hostilities have been flaring up Bits and pieces here and there, but from moving forward from this chapter on, it's going to start to boil over. Hostility is coming to the Christian church. Little did they know that this was God's chosen message to advance the gospel. The apostles didn't realize it. The chief priests didn't realize it. The disciples didn't realize it. That God's ways are what? They're not our ways. We just never know how God's going to operate in our own personal lives, in our own personal ministries, how he's going to operate in our nation, how he's going to operate in this world. God is going to get the word of this life out. You can rest assured on that. And we just never know how God's going to do it. And we always got to be open to that. It reminds me of a story about a man named Alexander Fleming, biologist. Anybody know who he is? All right, we have one, so he knows, he knows. He went on a vacation one day, but before he went on vacation, he did not clean up his lab. And when he came out, there was something growing on a culture. It was penicillin. Penicillin. It was an accident. He had no idea what was going to take place. And, and, And sometimes that's how the spread of the gospel is. We just don't know. How God operates. How God gets from place A to place B. Just look at our own life. How far have we come? I know we all want to go a little further. But when you look down the road and say five years ago or two years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. I'm still here and I'm serving the Lord. Understand something. That's a miracle of God's grace. It really, really is. And that's the rest of the book of Acts. And we don't want to miss that. That God is behind us. No one could have foreseen that the liberating, God-glorifying message that brings peace to men was going to set sail from Jerusalem on the winds of hostile persecution. But then again, God's ways are not our ways. And we don't want to miss that in the book of Acts. That Acts is going from town to town and, and city to city, and it's always being persecuted and scattered. Though the overall message of Acts is the spread of the gospel and fulfilling of the Great Commission... 
how a text touches upon this, but it also serves to show how God presides consistently over the preaching of the gospel, along with the proper attitudes Christians should have in a hostile world. God is presiding over our text tonight, and we need to see that. Let's go into verses 12 to 16. I want to make two observations from there. Excuse me. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, as Peter came by, so as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Number one, this gives us a little snapshot into early Christian ministry in and around Jerusalem. Right after the crucifixion and the resurrection, these verses show just the plain, raw power of God to heal the sick and the suffering. There are no long incantations going on over here. Hands are being laid on in the name of Jesus, and the sick, the dying, the demon-possessed are all being healed instantaneously. That is it. All at the apostles' hands. Every disciple was not running around healing people. Please don't miss that. The apostles' hands, those who were commissioned to carry the message of the cross and the resurrection, specifically handpicked by Christ. These are God's new agents. And as I've been saying, here's, we got new wine being poured into new wineskins. They're in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Solomon's portico, right there where the Ark of the Covenant is, right there where the priest had the sacrificial system, right there where the priest interpreted the law, right there where they praised God, right there in the midst of the temple. Guess what was going on? A bunch of fishermen were healing the multitudes and teaching them about Jesus Christ. This is God's affirmation, his confirmation that the new covenant has come and these are the heralds. These are the spokesmen now. It's no more the temple. It is no more the priest. It is no more the sacrificial system. Every time God did a miraculous thing in his temple, he was saying, the temple's over. It's the new message. This is the new wine in the old and new wineskins. It's an affirmation of both the message of Christ as the Son of God, dying for the sins of the world, raised from the dead. And it's also a confirmation and affirmation that these are the men that are carrying the message. This wasn't just arbitrary healing for no other purpose. Just think about this, what our text says. All in Jerusalem, the surrounding towns, the surrounding villages, all were healed. I have to say, since Cain and Abel, there hasn't been one geographical location that has been healthier than Jerusalem was 2,000 years ago. There wasn't a sick person around. Everybody was healed. Everybody. Think about the joy of sitting down at the table 
in Jerusalem at this time. Everybody's healed. Everybody. You couldn't find disease. And I say that for this reason. Because when we read the text, that's what God wants us to see. How awesome God is. And how he did this in the midst of the lion's den. In the midst of Jerusalem. That kills the prophets and stones those who send to her. And has killed the Christ outside the gate. Right there in the middle of Jerusalem. Right there in the middle of the temple. God sets up shop and says, now I'll show you. It's outstanding. And more than ever, believers were added to the church. But what's really outstanding, in the midst of all this healing, miracle ministry taking place, within all this, hundreds if not thousands of people are swelling into the young church. There's a joy, there's a gladness, there's a peace, there's a happiness going on. There's people that held them in high esteem. But they didn't believe. But they still wouldn't believe. Right there. They were held in high esteem. This, to me, this is a phenomenon. How do you not believe? How do you see what they're seeing? How do you see? How do you testify to what's taking place? And not believe. How could this be? What separated these two groups of people? One thing did. One group of people heard the message with faith and believed. They all saw the miracles. They might have even enjoyed some of the miracles. But when it came to the message of Jesus, they did not hear with faith. And as Pastor John's been preaching, even if the dead would come back and preach, if you don't believe Moses, you won't believe the dead either. Miracles at the end of the day just don't do it. It's the message of salvation. They heard with faith. Paul gives us that principle. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? That's how you receive the Spirit. That's how you receive this great joy. That's how you add it to the church receiving, believing with faith. He goes on to say in 17 to 21. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Filled with jealousy. When powerful people are filled with jealousy, you can rest assured bad things are going to happen. You can just rest assured. You got these fishermen, tax collectors, Exilots preaching the gospel, healing the sick, the multitudes are piling in, and no one's paying attention to them anymore. They were filled with raw jealousy, 
anger that the people were not following them anymore. And they rose up. They rose up to put a squash to it, to put an end to it. But God wasn't done yet in this city. He still had more grace to shower down upon this church. So God does what God wants to do. If he wants more preaching to go, he just delivers his apostles supernaturally. All the rage and anger and jealousy of the religious leader system could not stop what God wanted to do. So he delivers his apostles supernaturally. An angel comes, open up the prison door, let them go out. And he tells them to go preach Christ. Did he go say, go brag about your deliverance? Go brag about your healing ministry? What are they told to do? Speak to all the people the words of this life. I, I titled the message, Words of This Life, because it's the only time in the New Testament, it's the only time used as a designation of the gospel message. The gospel is called the good news, it's called the gospel, it's called the word of life. But it's never called the words of this life. The only place you'll see it. The message of Christ is a divine commentary on life. It's a how-to book on how to live in this world. Preaching Christ is life from the dead. Preaching Christ is man's only hope, man's only peace with God. Christ is God's only answer for this life. Let me put it this way. Without the word of life, guess what? There is no life. What does a prophet a man to what? Gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. Without the word of this life, people were worth roaming around. Going from one place to the other without really any life at all. Every blessing the New Testament speaks about comes about through the word of this life. Justification comes by preaching. Sanctification comes by preaching. Adoption, living hope, power over inner sin comes from preaching of the word of this life. Power over sin, over Satan comes from the preaching of this word of life. Power over added temptation comes from the word of preaching this word of life. Love for God and love for our fellow man comes by hearing with faith the words of this life. Power to forgive others who have hurt us. Power over anger. Power over prejudice. Power to heal family relations and to bring social order. All come by hearing the words of this life. So why do we waste time on anything else? So the angel, the messenger of the Lord, they receive an immediate instruction. Be bold, go right back into the lion's den of the temple and tell them and teach them Jesus. It's the only mandate. As a matter of fact, this is the church's highest mandate throughout 2,000 years. Teach this world Christ. You come to church, guess what you should hear about? That's it. Whatever else the church life should do or, or, or we do socially, Everything the church does goes to support this command. Teach them Christ. You're teaching the kids, you teach them Christ. He's speaking to the elders, you speak to them Christ. He's speaking to the young men and women, you speak to them in the words of this life. You go into the hospice, 
Yichitunus words of life. No matter where we go in life, we carry the words of this life. It's a command. It's the church's highest mandate for about 2,000 years to go into a life, go into a world that has no life without Christ and teach them. Break the word down. Bit by bit. Word by word. Paragraph by paragraph. Chapter by chapter. Old Testament, New Testament. Book by book. You feed them. You read it. You interpret it. You digest it. You give it to the people. And you feed them the words of this life. That's the church's job. He goes on to say in verse 21 to 39. And now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senators of the people of Israel, and they sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported it. We found this prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they were greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to be. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And not just that, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, he starts to preach. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And he goes on, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, remember what happened in chapter 3 when he preached? When they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what must we do? Remember what the people did? What did the leaders do? And when they heard this, they didn't repent. They weren't cut to the heart. They were enraged and wanted to kill. The whole king. Remember I told you once before and I stored on this. There were 70 in the council. Sitting in big chairs. And before them would be the apostles. Whether it was Peter and John or all of them. We don't know. Or just Peter. But they were there. And the whole council would be staring down at them. All the power in their hand to do whatever they wanted to do. Enraged. Filled with jealousy. They don't stand a chance. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care. What you, oh, I'm sorry. And enraged, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away many of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So too in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they heard this, the apostles heard the command, first and foremost, to go back into the temple. This command did not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts. They probably had their fears. They probably had their concerns. Even Paul preached with fear and trembling. But the angel's words comforted them with this word. It wasn't just a word of direction. It was an exhortation of strengthening. And they received it. The next thing we know, they find themselves in the temple preaching Christ. They didn't care what the, the, the Jewish leaders said. They got up and they followed the word of God. They followed the exhortation of the angel. And they went out and they went out preaching. God's divine deliverance of his apostles brought out the worst. Don't miss this. Brought out the worst of their adversaries. To think that little mention is made of the improbability of escaping from prison. You think they would have spent some time saying, how in the world did this happen? What's going to take place, they said. No. All attention is given to the one fact. They were teaching the people Jesus in the temple. God was not intimidated by the threats of the religious leaders. He came and he rescued these apostles. And it seems that the only thing the leaders were personally concerned about was bringing this man's blood upon them. That's what they were concerned about. But understand something. There's an implication here that we can't miss. This is part of the message they were filling Jerusalem with. There was no political correctness here. When the apostles preached, they gave an historical and accurate commentary about what happened to Jesus and who did it. It wasn't just Jesus is raised from the dead. It wasn't just uh, put your faith in Christ, be water baptized, be saved. They gave an historical account With ice water in their veins, they were able to preach Christ and preach him to the hostile religious leaders and tell the crowd, your leaders crucified him. And at this point, things didn't look too good for the apostles. It's interesting, the last time they were standing in this situation, they had the lame man standing there as a witness. They wanted to kill the apostles once before, but the the miracle was standing right in front of them. As a witness. That something great had happened. But not this time. They had nobody at this time. A jealous, powerful entity. Breathing threats. Hating a message. Guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. And their conscience knows it. There's nothing to separate them at that point from doing everything they wanted to do. Except what? God raises up a man. And at the last moment, Gamaliel stands up to show that God's really in control. And he reasoned with the leaders. And his reasoning won the day. 
We can't miss something here in the text. He won the day in the nick of time. The apostles' necks were in the proverbial noose. It was over. It was over, and it was at this point that this man stood up and went to bat for him. And again, it just goes to show, goes in. The text goes to show God's sovereign abilities. Understand something. The apostles' time to be martyred for the faith had not yet come. And nothing was going to stop it. Nothing. And they knew that. That's important for us to know. But while in the lion's den, Peter speaks out against their threat. The threat of we strictly charge you not to speak in this man's name. And Peter gives one answer. We must obey God rather than men. It's interesting. He goes, he, he, that would have been enough. But he gives a soundbite of apostolic preaching. Luke writes down something we cannot miss, we should not miss it, and we should etch it in our hearts. This is the teaching and the preaching that the apostles did 2,000 years ago that filled Jerusalem. Number one, he's the God of our fathers. Right away, they, they identify everything with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Their God. And this Yahweh raised Jesus. That's resurrection, that's doctrine. Whom you killed, that's historical commentary. God exalted, that's Christology at its highest. That's the Messiah at its highest. To give repentance, that's evangelistic. We are witness, that's personal obedience. So is the Holy Spirit. And the miracle of the Holy Spirit is this, not just the miracles, I should say, not just the healings, but it's all the people coming together, filled with the joy and the happiness of God himself, is the greatest testament of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Because I can tell you right now, the Bible teaches about four signs and wonders that Satan himself could do. But Satan can never turn a sinner's heart onto Jesus. Satan can never turn, a miracle can never turn, someone to love Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and give their life totally over to God. That is a witness of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, And God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Now, to you and me, we hear so much about the Holy Spirit, we can fit about the importance of that. The Holy Spirit was everything the Old Testament prophets prophesied about is here now. The age has come. It's not about the land flowing with milk and honey. It's not about more. It's not about ownership. It's about being possessed by the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God's greatest gift he can give to the sinner. The Holy Spirit coming into our life, being born again, takes away the old hearty stone and now gives us a new heart to serve God, to love God, to enjoy God, to please God, to honor God, to be led by the Spirit, not to be led by the flesh. That is everything you and I need in our life. Whatever you want to say you think you need, I can tell you what you really need. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit 
filling our heart with every true joy of our salvation. This sums up much of the center and the meat of the apostolic preaching. And he closes with these verses in 40 to 42. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And nice people, right? And when they called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for that name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. Even though the leaders agreed with the reasoning of that very wise man, nevertheless, they took out their anger and frustration by a little beating, a little more threatening. Don't teach this man anymore. But when they left the presence of these hostile unbelievers, they quickly realized for the first time, the Bible shows us how sweet it was to suffer for the name of Christ. You see, only a true believer knows the suffering. Only the true believer knows how sweet it is to suffer for the name of Jesus. And guess what they continue to do? Tell the world of who Jesus was. Nothing can stop. When it comes to application, how do we handle unbelief around us? How do we handle that people hold us in high esteem but just won't believe the message? Speaking to a gentleman for years, older than me, well-to-do. He was probably in his 70s at the time. He's in his later 80s. And I was talking about coming to church, and I was witness to him. I gave him everything. Ah, you Protestants, it's all about Martin Luther. Leave me alone. And, you know, I, I went to high school. I heard I read that in high school. And, uh, but anyway, his sons uh, looked up to me. They were in my karate class. I taught them karate. I taught them physical fitness. And uh, they admired me. They liked me. And I overheard the father telling them, listen, he's a good guy. Just don't go to his church. That's <laughs> I'm sitting there behind the door going. You see, they held him in high esteem, but they did not believe. It goes on everywhere. It goes, they'll, they'll like you because we're reliable. We, you know, with, with uh, honesty, integrity, these are the things that should follow us. You'd be crazy to, have, uh, to be a business owner and not want a born again believer in there working for you. You really would. But they still won't believe. But they still won't believe. How do we take hostility towards the gospel? Do we take it personally? It's hard not to sometimes, isn't it? But how do we handle it? Do we become silent? Do the years of unbelief around us sort of just silence our witness? I ask you. How's our witness? And, and if it's not there, then what, why isn't it there? What, what, why have we gotten cold towards our witness? Are we professionals now? I'm a professional Christian. I don't tell anybody about Jesus. I'm too, I'm refined. They'll think I'm crazy. 
Well, if that's what it takes, then we tell them about Jesus. Why have we become silent? Why do we take it personal? Have we compromised the message? Do we taper it down? Did Peter say Jesus died and was raised again? Or did he say you killed him? It wasn't a favorable position to be in. Do we tell people Jesus loves you? He really cares for you. That's true, isn't it? But we have to bring people to the cross. It's all religion until you bring them face to face with their need to be saved. How many people I've ministered to for months at a time, many months, until the day comes, you got to bring them to the cross. Amen. And I'm like, right, let me tell you the situation. For the last three months, I've been listening to you, ministering to you, and I want you to know it's not... A, it's not B, it's not C, it's sin in your heart. You gotta go to Christ. In the last six months, I had about five people, they didn't want to come. As soon as I got them to the cross, or God bring them to the cross, that was it. That was it. Up until then, they like to pass this stroke, they like to pass this comforting words, they like to be esteemed, they like to be affirmed. They like to know that God loves them, that God is there for them. But when you bring them to the cross, that's when you find out. Or do we do what we should do? We just simply move on to other people. Do we kick the dust off our feet? And we say, all right, God, I leave them to you, but I'm not going to silence my witness because people don't believe. Do I go to another group of people? Do I pray that God bring people into my life? I want to share Jesus. I don't want year after year after year to year to go by and not tell anybody about Christ, about eternal life. Do we know the special joy of being persecuted for the name of Jesus? Do we know the other side of persecution? Can you walk away from a hostile situation? Sometimes it's verbally hostile. Sometimes it's physically hostile. But most of the time it's intellectually hostile. Can we walk away with this saying, wow, I was just persecuted by my aunt, by my loved one, by my friend. Do we walk away bewildered? Yeah. But can we walk away knowing that special contentment that only a born-again believer who's witnessing for the resurrected Christ could ever understand, as the witness bears witness to us that we're doing the right thing. And have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit to comfort us. I want you to know something. I say that because that's contagious. God will always back himself up when we stand on the firing line and speak about the Lord. He'll always back us up. Is our obedience, is being obedient to God rather than the men more important? Can we stand there with Peter and say, being obedient to God is more important than being obedient to man? Is that living in our hearts? Do we need to be fearful of the culture or political correctness? 
is being obedient to God rather than the culture, is being obedient to God rather than political correctness, is being obedient to God rather than our family and friends, is being obedient to God rather than anybody else, is that a settled issue in our hearts? Is it settled? Do you know, can you sit here right now and say, Brian, that is a settled issue. It's been time tested. I've been through the trials. I've been through the fires. I've been through it. I'm telling you now, Brian, I will live and I will die for Christ. I will do it, Brian. Can we say that? Why not? What happened? Is the Holy Spirit impotent? Is he less real today than he was 2,000 years? What happened? How we answer these questions will be a barometer on this. Here's the barometer. I threw out some questions. Only you know how you answer them. I know how I answer them. How much do the words of this life really mean to us? That's the answer. Because if you're telling me, Brian, eh, I'm a little cowardly, I'm a little this, you know, then it's not that. How much do the words of this life, the gospel, really mean to us? Do we trade one form of religion that we got saved out of for another one? Are we zealous for the Lord? Are we at least remorseful that we don't share the gospel? Are you even concerned that people are going to go to hell? They're going there. Immediately upon their last breath, immediately they will go to hell. They will stand at the judgment condemned. How will they know if they do not hear? And how will they hear if someone does not go? If someone is not sent and preaches? How can we not give ourselves totally to the words of this life? I believe all of us need more strength in these areas. We do. And God's not shy. Let's just ask. Let's pray. We pray every Thursday night. I ask you now, if you can say, Brian, I'm shy. I, you know, I stopped, I've slowed down on my witness. Come and pray with us. Come out. You need more zeal? Come on out. You need more fire in your belly? Come out and pray. I can tell you this. Out of 25 years, and I know John would agree with me, those who pray are zealous for the Lord. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you right now. Those who corporately stand in prayer week in and week out are making a statement of their dependence on God in all 